This is an ABC podcast. Hello, I'm Amanda Vanstone. Welcome to Counterpoint. What happens when most people are well off and don't have the immediate need to band together for survival? Hmm, you guessed it. They start attacking their own. It's called oikophobia, and it could kill us. Did you know that disruptors are not all they are cracked up to be? It's really a marketing ploy by them and for them. And this may or may not come as a surprise, but placebos can, if you believe in them, have a positive impact on your health. But first, how to lighten your mental load, however briefly, and to lighten it for others. You might know someone who's always cheery, full of cheerfulness, and you think, oh dear, you know, they're not realistic. But cheerfulness plays an important role in our lives. Does it come from the face out or from within? These are interesting questions. It's not to be discarded. It might not be the strongest of emotions, but it is powerful. To talk about that, we'll be joined by Timothy Hampton. He's Professor of Comparative Literature and French at the University of California at Berkeley. And he's written a number of books and is a fascinating bloke to talk to. He joins us now. Timothy Hampton, welcome to CounterPoint. Thank you. It's great to be here. Cheerfulness. It sounds a bit childish, doesn't it? You know, inner happiness, sadness, anger, aggression, love. These are all strong things. Cheerfulness seems to go in the lighthearted bucket. It does. Yes. It's a modest emotion. And it's one of the reasons why I think we don't take it as seriously as we should, because it seems to just kind of float past us. It also comes and goes. It's ephemeral. I mean, no one is cheerful all the time. It's something that we sort of enact when we do it, right? And so it's kind of lying around out there in public, but nobody seems to notice it. So I thought, wouldn't it be fun to think more about it and see if a kind of modest emotion like cheerfulness could have the same kind of complexity that we associate it with those more powerful and extreme emotions that you were just listing for us? Sure. Tim, before we get onto the history of this, I just want to raise one point you made. You said we can cheer up just as we can calm down. That's not always easy for some people, but let's take cheer up since that's what we're talking about rather than being calm. Yes. At least if a smile comes to your face, even though you don't yes. inside feel happy, that yes. makes a difference, doesn't it? And I think it does. Most of the writing that I read about the history of cheerfulness or writers who talked about it seem to suggest that it begins in the face and it moves inward. So it moves in the opposite direction from the way we think most emotions move, which is that there's a kind of inner self and whatever we're feeling sort of comes out. Cheerfulness goes in the opposite direction. It's on the surface. It's kind of like the kind of parchment paper of our being. It's sort of there on the surface and it goes inwards, but it also goes outward in the sense that it connects us to other people. So yes, I do think it's on the surface of the self. But to return to what you were just saying, it's true. Cheering up is not always easy. And what I would want to stress about it as I think about it, as I have thought about it, is that we can think of it as a resource. It's something that's there for us to try to access when we have the opportunity. And I got to thinking about this project in part because at an earlier point in my life, when I was very young, I lived in proximity to some people who suffered a lot physically from having been in accidents and so on. Mm. And we all know people like this, people for whom just making it through the day is extraordinarily difficult. And in a context like that, the ability to project a kind of cheerfulness and to sort of lift yourself is invaluable. It's a way of getting ahead, of getting through the next hour or two. And so Mm. in that sense, I think, as I say, we should take it more seriously than we do. Mm. And when I was reading your article, I thought, well, let's see. So I smiled. And I can't explain it in detail, I can't articulate it, but when your face puts on a smile, it does inevitably, you can't stop it, it does change a range of other muscles. It it does. And you do feel, if only momentarily, 
a bit more cheerful. So it's a good thing. Now, you're not the first to be writing about this. People have written about cheerfulness before, haven't they? You've done quite yes. a lot of reading about it. What did you pick up from that? What do we need to know about what people said in the past about this? Yes. So that's a great point. So just to follow up on what you were saying, yes, and people have written a lot about this, about the smile. Social psychologists have written about this. And, you know, there's a long tradition in meditational practices, such as Buddhist meditational practices of what they call the half smile, this way of sort of putting on a kind of smile as a way of changing the interior of the self and so on. So there's a long and rich history there, which I really just admire and love to study. But my project was somewhat different, which is that I wanted to go back and see where people start first talking about cheerfulness using the English word and sort of what are the different ways in which it's been used and the kind of different meanings that have been attached to it. And so I began with the word itself, which comes from an old French word, the word share, C-H-I-E-R-E, which means face. And so if you go back and read someone like Chaucer in the 14th century, all of the characters in Chaucer's Canterbury Tales have a cheer. Sometimes it's a drooping cheer, sometimes it's a pale cheer. And so cheer is just a kind of synonym for an expression. But by the time we get to Shakespeare, as we know, people are cheery, they're wishing each other good cheer and cheerly this and cheerly that. And I wanted to know how that happened that the words should expand to take yeah. on the kind of psychological and emotional and even spiritual dimensions that we have today. One of the things that I discovered in my reading around in the earlier periods is that in the King James Bible, at the end of the 16th, beginning of the 17th century, when they translated certain words from Greek and Latin into English, they used the word cheer. For example, there's a moment in St. Paul's second letter to the Corinthians where he's talking about the practice of charity and how we should all be charitable towards each other and so on. And he has this great line where he says, for God loveth a cheerful giver. Well, that's not what it says in Greek, I can tell you that much. The Greek word doesn't even have anything to do with the idea of a face. But to use the word cheerful giver implies, certainly for a Renaissance English reader, an idea of a kind of happy face. So the people who tried to figure out what the heck St. Paul was talking about, you know, went wild trying to figure out what this means. Does it mean to have a merry look? Does it mean you're supposed to smile when you're being charitable? So on. So I guess my point here is that you can start with this very small word and it becomes more and more complicated as it gets handed around. And as yeah, the sure. centuries unfold, sure. and it takes on all these other layers of meaning, which are so interesting, it seems to me at now, least. It is a bit of a, an infection, if you like, isn't it? If someone <laughs> is in a group or comes into a room, yes. contagion, you might say, it's as if there's a brightness that emanates from someone yes. when they are cheerful. Yes. What is it about I, the infectiousness I, of it? I'm not quite sure, but it is the case that it seems to have a social dimension to it. When we often think of emotions, we think of them as being rooted in ourselves. But all the writers that I read about cheerfulness talked about the kind of social dimension of it, that it somehow, it seems to emerge between people, and in some cases almost to be bigger than the individual character. So the great thinker around this topic is the 18th century Scottish philosopher David Hume, and he uses exactly the word, you use the word contagion, that's one of the words he uses. He also calls cheerfulness a flame. He says if there are a bunch of people sort of standing around kind of droopy, and a cheerful person comes into the room, you know, his cheerfulness or her cheerfulness Will sort of zoom around the room and sweep everybody into it. So it's, it's an absolutely fascinating way of thinking about how emotion works. It's not the way we usually think yeah. about it today at all. Now, on a darker side of it, <laughs> is, is it fair to say that a lot of these self-help people, you know, the power of positive thinking, etc. Yes, yes. Basically follow, well, scouts were taught, for example. One of the yes. rules for a scout is be cheerful. Scout, be so cheerful. These positive thinking people, the self-helpers, yes. start off with, you know, be positive, be happy, be yes. cheerful. It's a sort of free recipe, isn't it? And a lot it of is. people make millions of dollars out of this. They millions. Do. They do. They do. They make millions of dollars, yes. And one of the people that I studied who I was most fascinated by was Norman Vincent Peale, you know, who made a gazillion bucks after World mm. War II with his book, The Power of Positive Thinking. And he talks about the way in which you just, kind of put on a happy face, your problems will go away. And what's fascinating about Peel's work, and I read a number of his books, is that very often he's describing situations 
that can't be improved by putting on a happy face. You know, some guy will come in and say, yeah, well, you know, my business was just destroyed and, you know, I lost all my credit and my family left me and I'm, you know, I'm in complete despair. What should I do? Mm. And Peel will say, well, you know, <laughs> you got to put on a happy face. There's a brighter tomorrow and so on and so forth. And then, of course, he moves on to the next story and he never really tells us what happened. But it's this idea that if you just work on yourself. I think that's one of the great illusions that we have, of course, in the modern world, is that if things go badly for you, it somehow is your fault. And you really need to just kind of work on yourself. And the fact that your business collapsed because of, you know, a crashing stock market or some kind of nefarious dealings by your competitors, that's really beside the point. And that the real point is to work on yourself. And people like Peel have made lots and lots of money. And as you know, there's this massive kind of positive thinking industry out there, which is yes. fascinating to study. Yeah. yeah. You don't have to have any great skills, academic yeah. skills. You just have to recognize. That's it. It's catchy. It's, catchy. It's, and it's then go and free. sell it. It's, yes, it's free for yeah. the taking. And it's an absolutely fascinating concept. Mm. I mean, you say cheerfulness offers a momentary modest respite yes. from the situation. Yes. I think you probably could have added in that maybe haunted yes. by dread and confusion. Yes. And I think that's a smart way to put it because the way I think of that is, is it's this little instant pill you can take. Yes. Just take a little taste of this. Yes. And you'll feel better even momentarily and not for that long, but you will feel yes. better. And then you can do it again in 10 minutes and I think get so. through the day. I think it is a resource, right? A kind of wisdom and a kind of resource that we have access to. There's not much there, right? And you can't build a big project on it. You can't build a politics on it. And I distinguish it from optimism. You know, if you listen to your mm -hmm. political candidates, they'll always say, well, you know, I'm optimistic about the future of Australia or I'm optimistic about the future of America. It's not optimism and it's not hope. You know, Barack Obama won the presidency of the United States by promoting the word hope. Hope is more of a messianic, kind of almost religious idea. It's a kind of momentary flip in the way you think about yourself and the coming moments that can have a kind of power, not transformative power, but a bit of power, a bit of energy. And I think that's a really interesting way to think about cheerfulness. And I think in the current moment, when we're all so miserable about so many things, you know, I think there's actually a real space to think about cheer and cheerfulness. Yeah. It may be more useful to us than we might think. Yeah. Tim Hampton, I'm pleased that we have academics and we fund our universities to <laughs> work out how to get to Mars and all of that stuff. But I'm also very pleased that we fund people like you who are working on things that will actually help us on the ground here today feel better, a bit more cheery. Thanks for well, joining thank us on CounterPoint. Thank you. It's my pleasure. Thank you. Now we know how to be happy. How do we know when to stop squabbling and what happens if we don't? Something new. They say you learn something new every day. Well, I'm not sure about every day, but I have today oikophobia. Huh, who knows what oikophobia is? It's a term apparently a few decades old, but it's going to take on because its meaning is affecting all of us. We're going to be joined in a minute by Benedict Beckheld. He's written a book, Western Self-Contempt, Oikophobia and the Decline of Civilizations. And he joins us now from New York City. Benedict Beckheld, welcome to CounterPoint. Thank you so much for having me. Oikophobia, where did that come from? I mean, oik is not oink, like a pig. Oik, right. oiko, I've never heard of it. Do you know anything yeah. about the origin of this term? Yes, indeed. It might be a coincidence that oik is also British slang for obtuse people, but it was coined by the late Roger Scruton in the mid-90s, and then especially in a book he wrote in 2004, England and the Need for Nations. He's the one who coined the term, so fear of home in ancient Greek. It wasn't used in that sense by the ancient Greeks, of course. It's yeah. a neologism, but that's what it means. So it's basically the extreme opposite of xenophobia. But a lot of people don't know the term, even though... The phenomenon of oikophobia is all around us, as you said, and so I'm a part of making it more well-known. Yeah, good on you. Okay, yeah. now how does this come about that contempt for your own civilization is an indication of it? 
Yeah, it's uh, essentially a process, and that's one of the big points I'm making in my book, which is that it's a process that repeats itself in history, and it has done so mm-hmm. since ancient times. Obviously, it's never exactly the same. Each civilization will have its own particular manifestation of yeah. it, but basically it happens once a civilization has become successful and has defeated its foreign foes, it turns inward and starts looking at foes on the inside, or it imagines that the old civilization becomes a new foe because basically human psychology always requires some sort of adversary. And so it happens that once a civilization is successful and large enough so that various competing interests can take place within the civilization, Okophobia then arises because one starts to turn against oneself in an effort to get yeah. ahead personally. And so, yeah. ironically, the success of a civilization is basically a prerequisite for the self-hatred of that civilization. Yeah. It's odd, isn't it, that when a civilization progresses and it gets more successful, becomes richer, wealthier, they don't have to focus so much on the basics of life, you know, shelter, food, health. They then start to focus on other things. So when you get there, when you get most people looked after, you start to attack each other. That's odd, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. Basically, already Aristotle makes a point that science, scholarship in ancient Greece started once the basic necessities had been taken care of, once society had basic security and food for everyone and so on, along with what you said. And so essentially that sets the stage for science to develop, for knowledge to develop, and for self-questioning to develop. And so that idea goes back quite a while, yeah. Yeah. So when you reject your own culture or an aspect of it, a particular aspect of it, you're pretty much saying to the other people in that culture, I am superior to you. You're creating an adversary, perhaps not an enemy, but you need an adversary. So you say to them, you're all idiots and I'm clever or we're clever. And... Mm -hmm. That's how you set yourself above. It doesn't seem to be a really smart sort of thing to do, but it's true, isn't it, that when the state's poorer and everyone's more reliant on each other and the state, there's more cooperation. Why haven't we been successful in if people recognise this? This is a given, as you say, from very early times. This is a repeating Mm -hmm. cycle. Why haven't we learnt to find a way to give people other things to focus on as their adversary rather than themselves. Yeah, well, that's first of all an important point you make, which is that the self-contempt or the self-hatred, of course, isn't directed against one's own self. It's directed against the self of the culture, right? And this becomes a manner of raising oneself above everyone else. So it's ultimately powered by vanity, as is so much else. I mean, some people do recognize the cyclicality of civilizations itself, that we sort of are stuck in this sort of pattern. That's a fairly old idea, actually. One finds it even to some extent in some ancient historians like Polybius, for example. But ultimately, I think we probably overestimate our fellow human beings if we think that these lessons of history would at some point be learned. Now, the oikophobe, you say, comes to regret the exploits of his culture. That's a description you've used in your article. That implies a sort of sense of, I don't know, decency, regret, bad things that have been done in the past and a burden carried rather than picking an enemy. But, I mean, it doesn't have to be one or other. It can be both, can't it? Yeah, absolutely. You don't have to. It's not just you need an adversary. You can say, well, if you don't all realise what we did wrong, you're not as smart as me. Yeah. No, absolutely. And it's certainly true that there is a positive side, if you will, to all of this, meaning that... There is, of course, some self-critique that might be perfectly justified. And civilizations, I'm talking here about Western civilizations specifically, do tend to become more self-aware, if you will, as they progress. This is even true in antiquity. It's not as true in antiquity because they don't have this whole notion of human rights that we have. And of course, once you have a notion of human rights, it's easier to see that some things in one's past history were wrong. But it does happen in antiquity as well. And so that is the positive side of the coin. One tries to improve one's own civilization. Here in the United States, of course, we can certainly look back at our past history and find things that we should be very happy are no longer the case. Things that Mm. have been remedied. And that's true for every civilization, but that's really the point. People who do focus on these negative things in one's past, coming back to being a realist here again, they tend to forget that as sad as it is, this is simply a part of every civilization. 
Benedict, I'm not suggesting that one ought not ever look back. When I say don't look back, you're not going that right. way. But I say that often to people as a way of saying, you know, don't make looking back your main focus and concept because you're moving forward. And the oikophobes don't always tend to have a way forward. I think it's fair to call some of them, you know, just complainers. And I don't mean to diminish them by that, but they're not wanting to build a better world. They're just criticising the bad parts of the world. And that's not enough. You need to have a way to say now, how can we avoid this in the future? What can we do? Uh, That's very true, although, yeah, I do, but I would add to it that sometimes it is the very desire for progress that, of course, feeds into orcophobia, right? Sometimes the most extreme orcophobes are also those who are most obsessed with progressing and moving forward and so on, as you say, because they want to move away from what they perceive as a very nefarious past. And so it is sometimes this very ardent progressivism that actually acts as an engine of orcophobia, if you will. And so, mm. whereas one should, of course, correct errors and so on, the whole idea of moving forward toward a brighter future and everything like this, that is actually something that makes us rather susceptible to orcophobia. Because even if we don't phrase it like that exactly, we sort of imagine that humanity is capable of a higher moral state. We imagine mm. that we can rid society of violence and bigotry and all of these things. But we can't. I mean, we can institute little fixes here and there, but we are, as I said, a fallen species. And this idea that we can progress toward a brighter future, this sort of utopian notion, that feeds into orcophobia, because the more we focus on a brighter future, the more the past seems repellent to us. And when the past seems repellent Uh. to us, then everything that is a part of the past, our tradition, our religions, all of these things, they become a part of that baggage which we wish to shed. Mm. Has anyone done some work on why nations haven't recognised, civilizations haven't recognised, that when you get fixated on your internal squabbles, you can't project yourself as a unified nation? Now, we all know yeah. this. Why do nation states not focus on this? I agree, have your adversaries focus people to, you know, the Cold War, for example. It's a political ploy, if you like, it's a realistic aspect as well. We have this person we are arguing that will bring us together. But at the same time, look domestically to what is causing unrest and see if those things can be used to unify people as well, rather than just international geopolitical adversaries. Mm. Why can't we pick out the adversaries within... I don't mean individual people, but the evils we want to get on top of. Yeah. Well, we all disagree about which those adversaries are. I mean, here in the United States, of course, we are so politically so split that some would say the adversary are organizations like Black Lives Matter and the more Mm. extreme left Democrats and so on. And the other side would, of course, say the opposite, that it's the more extreme Republicans that are the enemy. There are great shows of unity by subsets of the population, of course. But again, the bigger a society is, and obviously the United States is a very large and very diverse society Mm -hmm. in many ways, the bigger the society is, the harder it is to accomplish such unity. That's why if you compare... Yeah, exactly. I mean, if you compare it with a country like Denmark, for example, it's much easier for a society like Danish society to remain unified because they're homogenous in so many different ways and small. So size is definitely a big part of the issue. Now, the United States, of course, is in a unique situation in many ways since it's a country of immigrants. But basically, the formula of the bigger a country is the harder it is to remain unified. That more or less applies to the United States as well. Although, by and large, the United States, historically speaking, at least has done a pretty good job so far of keeping various strands together, society. But we see that slowly unraveling. You know, Benedict, in a past life, I was the immigration minister for Australia and would repeat time and time and time again that we, Canada and the United States, are the big three immigration countries in the world. That is, countries who've built themselves on immigration. They've sought migrants to come. So we've got something in common with the United States and Canada in that we are made up of people from all around. And that, in one sense, makes it harder for us and you and Canada. But in another sense, one would hope that if we can make it work, if the Canada, the United States and us can make it work and people can come together, shouldn't that be an example to the rest of the world that we can make it work? I think absolutely. And we are. 
I would say, I mean, I'm an immigrant myself to the United States. Mm -hmm. I was born in Sweden and lived in many European countries for a long time as well. And the United States was that example to me for so much of my life. And it is obviously to millions of other people. And I'm sure something similar could be said about Australia and Canada as well, as you say. So I would say that the fact that something will have an end one day doesn't mean that it wasn't a success, right? Everything comes to an end in this world at some point or other. I don't want to be a doomsday prophet or anything. And may that end be very, very far in the future, but everything does come to an end at some point. But I think we can still say that while it lasted, it was still a great success. And so I think it does work. I think it has worked. But the liberal order, and now I'm sort of opening up a whole new can of worms here, but the liberal order does sort of have collapse within its own formula baked into it. Because mm. the liberal order allows everyone to have a voice, allows sure. everyone to speak their mind, which is a wonderful thing. I mean, it's something that I yeah. myself have benefited from tremendously. Nonetheless, we can still recognize that while it is a wonderful thing, it still does mean that it's going to <laughs> exactly that it is going to lead to self-questioning. It is going to lead to schisms and ultimately to some form of self-flagellation or suicide on the cultural level. And so the liberal order cannot last forever. Like any other order, there are some political orders that don't have collapse built into its formula. They still end at some point because that's simply the world in which we live. Everything does end. But the liberal order does have that fatal flaw as a part of it. And that's just how it is. Benedict, we can't end this interview on that rather depressing note. So let's go to the pronunciation of oikophobia. I thought I heard you call it oikophobia. No, you pronounced it perfectly, oikophobia. Oh, good, because... Ocker is a slang expression in Australia for something that's particularly Australian. That's very ocker. So I no, want it to be oikophobia, not ockophobia. Right. No, I never heard that. Oikophobia, no, there we are. Benedict yes. Beckeld, thank you very much for joining us on Counterpoint. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. It's been my pleasure. Oh, here's the grumble for this week. It's hard sometimes to have perspective. For example, the universe or universes is so vast that we seem incredibly insignificant. And yet, if we could put together the sum of human knowledge, both available in data and in people's minds, it too would be spellbinding. So perhaps we're not completely useless. But do we properly understand our place on the globe? Do we, who know so much, understand the part every little bug or worm or bird or plant plays in our ecosystem? Or are we so stupid that we think the design of a bird or worm doesn't matter, but we do? Another threat, I think, is those people who see themselves as disruptors. They can be so egocentric as to think that they make all the difference in the world. New science is a great thing, isn't it? Discoveries are fabulous. New inventions. We pride ourselves on where humanity can go. It's all great. And we make heroes of some of the inventors, not all of them. But what are they? What sort of people are they? Are they Teslas? Are they Elon Musk's? What sort of people do you need to really get new inventions going? It's an interesting question. Ewan Morris, who is a professor at Aberystwyth University in Wales, he's a professor in the Department of History and Welsh History, has written a piece for Noema magazine, The Resurgence of Tesla Syndrome. And it's quite an interesting piece about what they're like. Do you know, they're all a bit fascinated with how they're presented. Do you think it's only politicians and media people that are like that? No, inventors as well. Anyway, so let's talk to someone who knows a lot more about it. Iwan Morris, welcome back to CounterPoint. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here again. Now, there are a couple of types of inventors, aren't there? People who get things done. Would you put them into two or more categories? There are almost certainly more than two categories, I suppose. But? But, yeah, I mean, I think traditionally over the past century or so, we've tended to see 
scientists, inventors, inventor entrepreneurs, if you like, in one of two ways. You know, these guys are two different and conflicting images of invention mm. that are kind of knocking around in contemporary culture. On the one hand, you know, there's that image of the inventor as the worker, somebody who plugs at it, somebody who's kind of, sort of beavering away, trying to get at the secrets of nature, trying to produce new knowledge, trying to invent something different. And there's that contrary image of the inventor as the rule breaker, somebody who's just simply different, somebody who's an iconoclast, somebody who does it all by themselves rather than working together, working collaboratively. You know, somebody who just kind of breaks everything in order to generate something better. A disruptor. And it's a very disruptor. interesting to see you know, something like, you know, where those kinds of images come from and what they do for us, if you like. Mm. Well, the first one is someone who, who said this, I stand on the shoulders of others, just takes, what well, I don't say just in a pejorative sense, but takes forward and stands on the work others have done to move forward. That's the builder. But the disruptor looks for something completely different. Elon Musk, he's a disruptor? Musk certainly likes to present himself as a disruptor. I think there's often a contradiction, if you like, between the ways that people like Musk or others, that kind of inventor, you know, there's a difference between the way they present themselves and when you look at it, what they actually do, so to speak. But yes, I mean, yeah, he's the disruptor. He's the one who does things differently. He's the one who breaks the rules. He's the one who's iconoclastic, who has his own personal vision of the way that our future is going to be, the way our future should be, and is kind of offering us you know, his vision and either we go with it or, or we don't. What about Elizabeth Holmes? You list Elon Musk, Jeff Bezos and Elizabeth Holmes as mould-breaking innovators. So let's talk about Elizabeth. Well, I mean, what's fascinating about Elizabeth Holmes is the way that she presented herself <laughs> at the conclusion of the story is a very nice illustration, I think, of the dangers of disruption. If all we think that matters is people's capacity to disrupt, if all we think that matters is that they can present themselves as different, they're doing something completely new, they're breaking the mould, then we're inclined, I think, to pay less attention to what's underneath the froth. And it's what's underneath the froth that's actually necessary to get... Well, that's right. And I don't want to put it down, but you just made the point about what's underneath the froth. I mean, didn't she claim something that wasn't true and didn't she know it wasn't true? As opposed to Uh, Musk and Bezos, who generally doing things in a different way and, and it is working. Whether it's always working and whether it's always beneficial is... I think, arguable. Oh, yeah. Okay. Um, but yes, I mean, I mean, I put Holmes in that list partly out of mischief. <laughs> Fair enough. But also to kind of you know, underline that point that the problem with disruption as a story about how invention ought to go, about how the future ought to be made, is that it distracts attention from what actually really does matter for making our collective futures. I mean, let's take Musk as an example again. Musk is famous for Tesla, a well-chosen name. Electric car, he's famous for SpaceX. He's done through private enterprise, supposedly, what state organisations have failed to do. And yeah, in a sense, he has. But who's doing the work there is the question that, wearing my historian's hat, I'd always be inclined to ask. After all, it's not Musk designing the Tesla. It's not Musk designing those rockets that are taking satellites into space and they're going to be carrying people to the International Space Station and hopefully ultimately to Mars. It's lots of other people that are doing that. And I think that that's another problem with that kind of sort of disruptive mindset and the assumption that it carries with it that it's all down to specific individuals, that it's specific, remarkable iconoclastic, rule-breaking individuals that are responsible for bringing about innovation. Well, actually, it's not. Do we have a bit of an issue here in the sense that, yeah, there are the disruptors who would like us to believe that they are an essential part of the world and it's the only way we're going to move ahead is by disrupting things and changing the way we do things. And that's one wise man down one end of the table. And another wise person at the other, perhaps a woman, says, well, Hold on, you know, there might be a place for you, but really history shows that 
you can't make these big jumps if other people haven't done all this groundwork on the way. And as Edison said, it's 1% inspiration and 99% perspiration. And good inventors need to have the latter as well. So each of them think they're right, but isn't there a person in the middle who says, come on, guys, we need both of you? We need um, the Thomas Edisons and we need the Tesla people as well. I'm not sure that we do need the Tesla people. Okay. By and large, I think, wearing his historian's hat, history suggests yeah, that that kind of iconoclasm doesn't really do anything in the end. I mean, I, mean, I think in a sense, I mean, that's one of the things that absolutely fascinates me as a historian about not so much the figure of Nikola Tesla himself, but the kind of role that Tesla plays in contemporary culture now. Because, I mean, you know, Tesla is the kind of favourite icon of Silicon Valley sort of tech bro culture. Yeah, he's the historical figure that all of these guys, and they are mainly guys, want to be like. Watching the Disney cartoon Gravity Falls with my little daughter last week, I think. And one of the characters there is this kind of you know, inventor type. And there's a shot of him on screen in deep thought. And I suddenly realised who was on the poster behind the guy. <laughs> it was a person, Nikola Tesla. I mean, he stands for that kind of aspirational, I'm going to change the world, I'm going to change the world single-handedly. I said, of course, that Tesla didn't change the world. Yeah, Tesla as an inventor, by and large, from the 1890s forward, you know, from the period when he really started making his name, was a failure. You know, none of his stuff worked. But he had this mm. kind of single-minded vision of this is how I'm going to change the world. You need to follow me if you want to come to this new sort of technological future. So these guys are really marketing geniuses, aren't they? Marketing themselves as people we need. Yes. And again, I mean, I mean, there's nothing particularly new about that. I mean, Tesla was very good at marketing. So for that matter was Thomas Edison. Marketing, you know, certainly throughout the 19th century into the 20th, you know, marketing, unsurprisingly, I suppose, has always been part of the business of invention. I mean, you know, it's very easy to imagine inventors as people are doing it because, hey, they just have an idea and they want to push it through. But no, I mean, inventors almost invariably want to make money. And selling your product is part of that. And it turns out that selling a particular image of who you are as the maker of that product is kind of integral to the business of invention as well. Yeah. So people like Bezos, people like Musk are consummate performers. You know, they're consummate marketers. Yeah. You know, they're selling an image of themselves as part of the business of selling their inventions, selling their products. Sure. Now, you make the point that innovation really is the work of multitudes, not singularities. Okay, well, that's got a ring of truth about it. But then you talk about the disruptors of politics, like Trump, for example, who says, drain the swamp, cashing in on a long-term decline in the confidence in public institutions, long-term that's speeded up in the last decade or two, but long-term decline. And yet he's not a multitude, is he? He might be cashing in on multitudes, but there's not a lot of him saying they can fix it. He's not going to fix it. He's another sort of Musk or Tesla marketing uh, himself yeah. as someone who's going to do it. There's an interesting comparison here between the way we think about technology and the way we think about politics, yes. which I think is quite revealing about both technology and politics. You know, increasing that notion that what politics needs is disruption. And shockingly, I mean, as I'm sure you're kind of passingly aware over there, there is currently a leadership campaign for the leadership of the Conservative Party and therefore the prime ministership going on at the moment. Yes. And again, quite surprisingly, given after all they have been in power for a dozen years, I mean, the public statements of the leadership candidates are kind of drenched with this kind of language of disruption. I mean, there was an editorial in the Daily Telegraph, I think, of all newspapers the other day, saying that the Conservative Party needs to be disruptive, which I thought was a rather odd description of what a Conservative Party should be. I mean, in politics, as in technology, there's an issue what we need is charismatic individuals. What we need to do is to depend on these individuals who are going to lead us into a new kind of future. And it's not just on the right of politics, you know, with the Trumps and the Johnsons or the Bolsonaros one sees it, something like Jeremy Corbyn in the UK you know, had the same kind of public presentation, you know, presenting themselves as the individuals that you need to follow you know, if you want to get to a different politics. And I think that that's very dangerous. Mm, I'm sure it is. Well, I have to say that this has been a very interesting discussion. 
It's left me thinking. And to me, that's a great article. Ewan Morris, thanks for joining us again on CounterPoint. Thanks very much. Do you think Elon Musk would take a placebo? I mean, it's a sort of medication, or not. When you're a kid and fell over, did your mum or your grandma say, oh, come here, I'll kiss it better? And did you think it felt better? Well, I don't know. I think I did. Now, you've heard about trials with placebo pills. You're taking nothing, you're taking something that really works. And in the end, they compare what the differences are. Now there's a group of people, perhaps have been for some time, focusing on whether even if you know it's a placebo pill, right, even if you know you've got the one that's nothing, does it have an effect? Well, apparently it might. Carrie Leibowitz is a health psychologist in California. She did a PhD at Stanford. And there she did research in the Stanford Mind and Body Lab into a whole lot of things relating to our health and well-being. And she joins us now from California. Carrie Leibowitz, welcome to CounterPoint. Oh, thank you so much for having me. Did your mom kiss it better? Oh, she did. And it worked every time like a charm. <laughs> well, are you a Skittles fan? Do you like the lollies Skittles? I've been known to enjoy a Skittle or two now and again. Yeah. Well, tell us about Marshawn Lynch. Yeah. So, Marshawn Lynch is a football player, and I have to admit, I know a lot more about placebos than I do about football, but he used to, when he was sort of coming up, when he was playing in school and he was playing football, he was really good, but he would get extremely nervous before his football games. He would have anxiety and stomach aches and sort of have that classic performance anxiety that maybe a lot of us get before sort of a big performance, whether it's a talk or a musical concert or a big athletic game. And his mom told him once, here, eat these Skittles. They will fix your anxiety. And mind you, he had tried all sorts of other stuff, you know, over-the-counter remedies. I don't know exactly what. We could imagine some Pepto-Bismol. We could imagine some other things. And nothing really worked for him. And his mom told him, here, eat these Skittles. These will help with your anxiety. They'll make you feel better. And not just that, they'll make you run faster and play better. And ever since then, Marshawn Lynch, you know, this was when he was a child, but now he's an adult man and he uses Skittles as his secret weapon before his games. He eats Skittles to give him this extra edge, this extra sort of superpower. Yes, it's his Linus blanket. Exactly, exactly. Yeah, okay. Now, apparently it has been shown that even when people know it's a placebo, if they think it's going to work... That is, they get a benefit primarily due to the belief that what they're doing, taking the medication, engaging in a ritual, whatever, getting treatment, will have an effect. Then it generally does have one for a whole range of things like anxiety, pain, asthma. I was surprised to read even Parkinson's disease. But you say that this isn't just a question of how they feel, that it can actually be shown in measurable physiological improvements, that if you believe the placebo effect will have an effect, it will and it's measurable. That's right. So, you know, we most often think of placebos in the context of randomized control trials, right? And yeah. so this is where you're developing a new drug or treatment, and you compare that new active treatment to a placebo. And the goal there is to make sure that any benefit that you see from the treatment isn't just due to sort of these psychological and social factors or what we thought were these sort of amorphous, immeasurable factors, but to make sure that it's really due to the drug. So the goal in these contexts is to sort of subtract out the effect of the placebo. But what's really interesting is that placebos on their own are shown to be beneficial in a really wide range of conditions. So some studies estimate that as many as 90% of conditions are improved by placebos. And like you mentioned, not just things like pain and anxiety, although that too, also things like asthma, Parkinson's disease, heart disease, high blood pressure. So for a while, scientists thought, okay, you know, placebos are really powerful, more powerful than we think, but really what good is that? Because in order to get those benefits, you have to lie to patients. You have to tell them that they're taking an active drug when really they're taking maybe a sugar pill. And so a group of researchers, and now it's sort of a much bigger group, started wondering, well, what if people actually 
knew they were taking a placebo? What if we didn't have to lie to people or deceive them? Could these placebos still have an impact? And one of the sort of first hallmark studies on this was done at Harvard University, and they looked at this in patients who had IBS, irritable bowel syndrome, and they found that even when patients knew they were taking a placebo pill, they saw improvement in their condition as a result of taking the sugar pill, you know, two to three times a day. And that study has been sort of replicated, and they've shown that this is true in other conditions as well, conditions like ADHD, asthma, allergy, back pain, a whole host of conditions where even when people know that they're taking a treatment that has no quote-unquote active ingredients, they still see a benefit. Yeah. Now, could this be that the person taking the placebo, knowing it to be a placebo, has got some of the benefit from the fact that, one, someone is interested in their health, that is, they're taking part in this trial, and two, that they are doing something to manage their health. They've got a sense of ownership, if you like, of what's happening with themselves rather than someone who just sits in a chair and says, oh, God, I feel terrible. The person taking the placebo, knowing it to be, is at least doing something and that always makes people feel better if you've got control of your life or an element of control and that someone cares. Do you think that has a role? And if you don't, what is it that makes people feel better and measurably better when they take a placebo? Absolutely. So, you know, you're really on to what a lot of the researchers are talking about, right? The question then becomes, what's the mechanism here, right? How is it that these sort of placebo pills that people know are placebo pills could lead to benefits, real measurable benefits and physiological improvement? So certainly as you're talking about this idea that someone cares, a warm and trusting doctor-patient relationship, there have been a number of studies, both with placebo pills and also with active drugs and treatments, showing that when there's a warm, trusting, empathetic interaction with a healthcare provider, treatment tends to work better. There have even been studies where they give people treatment with what they call sort of a limited interaction. So that's a sort of no nonsense, all business, just giving you sort of the prescription and an enhanced therapeutic interaction where the doctor really listens to you and connects with you. And they find that those treatments work better when there is that sort of warm interaction with the provider. And then certainly, right, this idea of control which also comes to this idea of sort of expectations, expectations that you might feel better can lead people to feel better. That's one of sort of the tenets of the placebo effects, right? The placebo effect can be defined as any benefit that's not due to the treatment, but due to some other maybe belief in the treatment or psychological forces. And the question I think you're really getting at is one that I'm really interested in my work and one that we work on a lot in the Stanford Mind and Body Lab, which is, okay, can we understand What's actually leading to a benefit when people are taking these placebo treatments? Can we unpack it and can we figure it out? And so we in our lab say these forces aren't mysterious. And contrary to the randomized control trial, they actually can't be subtracted out from treatment. Because when you're really getting medicine, whether that's a placebo or an active treatment, the total effect of the medicine is a combination of the active ingredients of that medicine, sort of the pharmacological properties, and all of these other mechanisms that lead to placebo effects. So things like patient expectations, patient psychology, conditioning, right? So we've all maybe taken many medicines over the course of our lives and now maybe have an unconscious conditioned response to associate the act of taking a pill with some sort of relief. There's that interaction with the doctor that helps sort of engage our expectations and our mindsets around treatment. And so we're really working to sort of along with many other researchers at many universities, to unpack some of these things and understand them better. Yeah, but there are other things, aren't there? Because I get it that because you take a pill, over your life you've taken pills and it's made things better, that may condition your brain into thinking, well, I'm going to feel better because I've taken this pill. Warm and caring treatment, that's important. But you did a study for patients recovering from spine surgery where they were taking the real pills and the open placebo pills and the other group were only taking the normal treatment. And the ones who were taking both took the open placebo pills, open label pills, consumed about 30% less morphine in the days after surgery. Now, mm-hmm. that's not a consequence of taking a pill because they're all taking pills. For some reason there, the open placebo pill made the people need less painkillers. How does that work? Right. So this is a really interesting line of research that's called sort of dose tapering. And the idea here is that 
if you start somebody on a high level of medication, say morphine after surgery, and give it to them with a placebo, then the placebo sort of, even if it's an, what we call an open label placebo, a non-deceptive placebo that people know is maybe a sugar pill, then what you can do is over time, they come to associate both treatments, sort of the active treatment, maybe the real yeah, pain relief yeah. pill, and the sugar pill with the relief. And then over time, you can decrease the pain relieving pills and increase the open label placebos to make up for that gap. And there you can sort of see these same effects maintained. And I think what we underestimate is our body's own healing systems. We have tremendous pain relieving opioid systems in the brain. We have really amazing immune systems. I mean, think of every time you've gotten a cold or a virus and you've recovered a bruise or a sprain or a cut or a scratch that your body has healed itself from essentially. And so somehow, and again, you know, we're still sort of digging into some of these mechanisms of what they look like, but somehow these open label placebos are able to activate our natural pain relieving systems yeah, sure, in, I get it. in I a get case it. like this. Now, what kind of guards do you have on the Stanford lab to keep away the big pharma companies who might not be happy about placebo pills <laughs> getting a better standing? And in fact, us recognising that there are ways we can trick, if you like, trick what you're saying, our own immune system or our system generally into responding effectively against an illness. Big Pharma wouldn't like that. Right. It's actually such an uphill battle because if you look at, you know, the teams of people who are doing randomized control trials for new drugs and treatments, they have, you know, seemingly mountains of money and tons of people working on these things. Mm. And the researchers who are working on placebos are a lot less well-funded, most of them, and a lot smaller teams, because basically there's not a lot of money to be made in this. My co-author on the article we wrote, Darwin Guevara, who's a postdoc at UC Berkeley, he really talks about the need for bigger, higher sample, more people studies of these open label placebo effects. And part of the difficulty of that is running these kinds of large clinical trials without sort of the resources that the big pharma companies have. Carrie Leibowitz, thanks for joining us on Counterpoint. So much for having me. And that's it for this week. As ever, I'm grateful for your company and I look forward to talking with you next week. Until then, this is Amanda Vanstone saying cheerio. See you later. Arrivederci. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.